0: Thankful that you're here, um, pray that God's using this conference uh, in a way to maybe minister and meet you in ways that you hadn't anticipated even in coming and contacts and that. I know for me it's been a blessing coming over the years that I've been coming for the last eight years or so um, to this conference and God's used that in my life uh, through the work that we do and the work that we've been doing overseas and so let me just commit this time uh, to the Lord and we'll pray and then uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you and your goodness to us. And Lord, we're coming from different walks of life, and uh, you have each of us in, in different places, and we're here for different reasons, but ultimately, Father, we want to hear from you, your spirit to uh, work in us and among us, uh, Father, and uh, just bring conversations uh, into place that you would have for us, Father. even this presentation, just use it as you would in my life and in the others that are here. Lord, we thank you that uh, we can point to you for the glorious things that you've done. Uh, Father, thank you and ask your blessing on this time together. In Christ's name, amen. So the GMHC folks uh, a while back asked me to, would I be willing to speak on this topic, uh, Christian dental ministry and resilience in the inner city. And uh, I just, I told them, yeah, I'd, I'd be willing to do that, but I hadn't really it's not something that I've thought about, you know, what does resilience look like? What does it look like in the context that we have? What are the implications for dental, inner city, all of those kind of things? And so as I began to really look at it, it just really began to open my eyes. And so what we're going to talk through today is, is kind of go through a little bit of what that has looked like, a little bit of the things that, that God has taught me in our walk Uh, objectives. We want to identify the key challenges of working in either inner-city cross-cultural settings. And so I'm going to rely on you guys. So I need a little bit of input when it comes to that time. What are some of the things that you've seen, whether it's in school preparation, working cross-culturally? A number of you have good experience in doing that. Some of you are working inner-city context. So what are some of the challenges that we face as dentists or in whatever our occupation is as we seek to work out things for the Lord. And then we'll look at some practices and stuff that uh, do that. These are my affiliations, so I don't have anything that this is a CE course. I don't have anything to declare to that's going to do it. But I was kind of putting this together, and I'm like... Realize I'm kind of addicted to Christian organizations. I think, you know, I remember back when I was in private practice, that wasn't the case. You know, I was involved in a lot more community things. So it was actually a little bit convicting to me. Uh, when I when I put this right, you know, it's like the, the, the seas and going through and all of this kind of thing. It was just a little bit weird. So I'm going to go seek the Lord and see what that means uh, as far as, uh, uh, I, I don't know. But but these are all great organizations, people that I'm working with very closely uh, currently, and, and so thankful to be doing that. As we look at, at resilience, there's—I mean, God puts people into our lives, and so the people that He's really put closely in, in my lives are, are my family. And so, uh, we've walked these years together, um, and God's used them in tremendous ways as we have faced obstacles, done a number of different things. These are. Little grandkids coming, we got one on coming on the way, but god 's walked with us in uh, a number of different ways, and really has used this to shape us and to uh, and me in, in understanding a little bit about that. so twenty years ago, this was my family. We had just arrived in Burkina Faso uh, in West Africa to do French language study, and I, I highlight this just because so much of what i 've learn what God's taught me, and as I reflect on what does it mean to be resilient, and is that something that we can build into our lives, so much has been that. And so, you know, being new workers on the field, you know, you come across an elephant crossing sign. It's like, picture, picture, let's get a picture in front of this. But the reality is, in, in the 20 years that we've been walking as a family, those obstacles become real. Um, and so on the trip back, you know, the elephants were actually in the road and we had to stop and wait for them to cross and, and to go through all of that. And so all of us where we find ourselves different challenges, different obstacles and this idea of what does it mean to to be resilient? Is it willpower? Is it, you know, being strong and pushing through or are there other factors that contribute to that? So some of the places and things that have really informed me as uh as a Christian dentist and as a a servant of the Lord. Uh, We started out at bungalow hospital in the jungles of Gabon. So this was located in a village of 3000. So a tiny little setting, not the inner city uh, by any stretch um, and doing. So God walked with us there for a number of years and uh, we did dental training program where we trained in over a three year process and people graduated and are continuing to uh, continue the work. Um, at that hospital. And then God took us to a city, a small town on the edge of the Sahel, uh, Sahara Desert area, um, a town of 150,000, like a big village, just kind of all packed in. And, and in the trajectory that God took us, um, he had us in, in a place where we were working to, to build a hospital. So my role was no longer dentistry, dental training, but a little turn of events, as God does sometimes when we give to him, we think we have this pathway, and he begins to direct us in in other ways. But living in that city informed us a bit, and then from there we moved to Dakar, Senegal, uh, a city of two and a half million people crammed on this peninsula uh, on the very far west coast of Africa, and a great place. We loved being there. My wife was involved with with teaching, and ESL, and uh, teaching in an international school, and our kids graduated from there, came back to the U.S., and God continued to lead and direct us. And then for the last five years, we found ourselves in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, And God, we work with CMDA, and and through that, we moved to to the inner city of Memphis. Uh, God allowed us to start a dental residency training program where we have young graduates that have come and join us and and do an AGD year uh, for advanced dental training. Stay on for a total of three years where we've created a, a discipleship model uh, that includes house, church, and living in the neighborhoods, the underserved neighborhoods that we're serving. And so God has taught us a lot. What does it mean to live in the inner city? What are the obstacles and things that we face as we move forward in that? And, and God's done that. And now God has people in place and that continue to lead that. And we had opportunity to start a second program. And so uh, just a couple of months ago in August, uh, my wife and I uh, moved up to Detroit, Michigan uh, to begin putting together uh, a dental residency training program there. And so we're really excited. We, we love being in Detroit. It's really interesting. When we, you know, I was in private practice for 10 years in Ohio. I didn't start there, but and then we're going to Africa and it's like, oh my goodness, you're going where? What do you, you know, like, why would you take your kid? You know, all of those kind of things. And so went to different places, and then we started in Gabon and went to more uh, Muslim areas. And people were, like, you know, really concerned about that. But then we moved to Memphis. And people were like, well, first we came back and went to the States. It was like, oh, good, you're coming back to the States. Things are going to be safe. And, uh, but then we said, well, where are, you, where are you moving? And we said, we're going to move to Memphis. And they're like, oh, my goodness, Memphis? Why would in the world would you ever move to Memphis? And so God had that. And now the people in Memphis are going to Detroit. <laughs> Why would you ever move to Detroit? Is there a worse place that you could possibly go? You know, and and so, but we've every place that we've lived, God's given us a heart and a love for that place, and so every place has been better than the place before, and so now this is our new favorite um, coming in here. If we look at Detroit, uh, this is one of those census block datas and kind of looking at. Uh, uh, at the different races, and so this is Detroit. If, if we look down at, at the bottom part of that, where it's all white, that's actually Canada. Uh, the Detroit River comes up there. So, just interesting—the only place in the world that you drive, or in the United States, where you drive south to go to Canada, all right, From the from the city there. So that's a trivia question somewhere along the way. But the green, uh, black, African American, right, and, and and the blue, white, um, the red is Asian. And uh, the yellow uh, Hispanic on on this chart. And and so you see the little place in the middle that kind of stands out, that little square with red and blue and and different dots. That's where we have chosen to locate in in the city there. And so this is uh, an aerial view of where we live. I can stand and touch houses on on either side. It's a a little two-mile square stretch within uh, Detroit at a place called Hamtramck. and so as we moved into this place, God just made it very clear. So we're living in a city within a city, uh, of Hamtramck. And, and we're so thankful. We love this place, but you can see it's changed. It was it started as a, a Polish immigrant place to work in the Dodge factory. Uh, so Dodge brothers started their factory in the early 1900s. Needed workers. Polish immigrants just pulled it, poured in. But over the years, it's changed, but it's always been a place that's welcomed immigrants. And so the immigrants that are arriving there are now widespread. So we have uh, folks from the Bosnian conflict back in the 80s uh, coming in. Uh, we have now uh a lot of people from Bangladesh and difficulty coming there. In fact, the largest people group in our little two miles is from Bangladesh, the second uh, being from Yemen. And so the majority of the population here is Muslim. Within that two square miles, we have 17 mosques in two square miles. And so this is a place as we're thinking, and God's put on our heart, how do you create a training program to send people to the ends of the earth? One of those are, is let's, let's do our dental training, let's do our missional training in a context where we can live that out together in community on a daily basis. And, and so the story of Detroit itself is a story of resilience. Um, And coming in. And so it wasn't that long ago where people, the best thing they could say was, it's not that bad here. Um, In Detroit, um, they were $18 billion in debt. Uh, Their population had gone from 1.85 million people in 1950 to 700,000 in 2013. They lost well over half of their population, people moving out and going away um, and all of that. And so businesses moved out. There was 70,000 empty business buildings in Detroit, 35,000 empty homes, 90,000 lots that had been cleared of homes that had gotten, uh, just left behind and all of that. And so that was Detroit. And so for the folks that were there, the best they could say was this. But then things began to change and people said, well, let's, you know, let's start saying nice things about that. And in 2013, they declared bankruptcy. Um, and it began to, they began to reorganize their finances. um, the debt, uh, $9, million, $9 billion worth of debt was, was eliminated. They refinanced. And things started to change. Car industry got bailed out. General Motors back in that time and, and all of that. New investments started pour, pouring in. And uh, all, all the football, baseball, basketball, uh, we have uh, hockey. All of that began to move into downtown as it began to be real vi- revitalized. And the city started taking off again. We started seeing growth. All of these things beginning to happen. And there began to be an excitement. Now, I didn't experience that. This is coming from the folks that have been there and beginning to experience it, right? And so, within that, there's different populations in Detroit and, and coming. And so, began to take that on and saying, okay, what is happening and doing that? And, and excitement. We just were at a, at a group where all these things with Detroit pushing and doing that. But... In that whole process, there was a lot of folks, seven hundred thousand, right, that never left, and so they began this big push. You know, it's the comeback city, Detroit, right? Come back, and all this thing, investments coming back in. Come on back, come on back, come on back. And the people that were there were like, "Wait a minute, you know, we never left." And so their invitation was kind of, "Well, come back to Detroit. We missed you the first time, <laughs> you know." And 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 you know, maybe we were there, but. The spirit there—it's amazing what what's happening and going through. And um, you know, they said, you know, we never left. And so there's a number of folks that have stuck it out and and seeing that really work and, and be real revitalized. So it's it's a city that like has like when we were moving there, Carrie goes, what is it that you like? I'm so I'm from the, the north. I'm from Cleveland, Warren area. So that was when I was a kid. That was the steel belt from Pittsburgh, Youngstown, Warren, Cleveland, Detroit. You know, still, fa- it was it was just like, it was gritty. In those days, it was gritty because the pollution had grit in it, you know. and Because it was, you know, factories going. But, man, people were, that's how we started the middle class in this country, you know, and that. And then all of that began to disappear. So cities like Pittsburgh and Cleveland, everybody had to figure out how were they going to, you know, survive. And Detroit had the auto industry. And so they looked really good and promising. And then things in there, steel went, you know, other places to be developed uh, and doing that. So... The story of of Detroit is is really a a story of of resilience. And so as we began to look at this, you know, I I went to the Internet and said, you know, what is the definition of resilience? And this is what came up with uh, from Merriam-Webster was an ability to recover from or adjust easily to misfortune or change. And so I sat on that definition for a while and I thought, you know, that certainly doesn't describe Detroit. Detroit is a very resilient city, but... That one word in there was giving me problems. And the people that I know in my life that I would consider very resilient that have had to walk through tremendous difficulties, have had kids that have God has allowed to be taken from them and walked through all kinds of events, it's never been easy. Right? And so I like started to search, you know, what might God want to do or what kind of definition would we have that we did. So this was a resonance. So I went back to my dental school days. And so how many of you are dental-affiliated dental, dental affiliated folks in here? So a good number of you. Remember, I don't know if they're still doing the teaching this in dental school, um, but we had our materials class, right? And so went to that, and material science resilience is the ability of a material to absorb the energy such as when it's re- – uh, and and release that energy when it's unloaded, right? So the new partial dentures and all of those things—they how resilient they are—they rebound and, and go back into that. And so, when I was growing up, we had a little toy. Anybody remember this toy, right? Yeah. So those of us at that era—that was a big deal. My first one, I remember going to to my grandma's, and so we had you know this this Slinky going, and you know to so make it go down the steps. And so that idea of resilience—that it, you know, you could put energy into it. Um, but it, it'll bounce back in doing that, right? But what happens with slinkies, right? This is, all my slinkies ended up like that, right? Because you went beyond that elastic point, right? So proof resilience, maximum energy that can be absorbed up to the elastic limit without creating a permanent distortion. And so as we think about resilience in our lives, you know, there's a limit of the, amount of things that we can absorb, you know, and, it, and it's easy to just quote the verse that God's not going to give us more than we can handle and all of that. But the reality is sometimes we're absorbing and we don't know where that limit is. And so as I began to look at uh, other definitions that I like better, I came across this one and research from an article that came. And it says, resilience refers to the ability to rebound in life, to bounce back after a pressing difficulty, and to persevere and adapt when things go away. And that, that makes sense to me. And a resilient individual is someone who overcomes obstacles and navigates through the unexpected setbacks to reach forward uh, toward the new possibilities. And, and so those are definitions, things that I can live with. There's nothing easy in it, um, but I think there's things that we can do to prepare for that. The Apostle Paul said this, we're pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. And he's talking about his community, the people that he's ministering with. He says, we're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but not ever abandoned by God. And we get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. And so as we looked at that, I want to take just a couple of minutes. And so what are the challenges that that are facing you? You you know, what are the challenges in the things that are doing? So whether it's undergrad or within the dental community and, and difficulties, What are some of the challenges? You know, ideally we want to operate so the modulus of resistance is that area under the curve uh, that's shaded, right? And so we want to operate in there, right? We don't want to go so far that we're doing that. But we have some real challenges. And so what are some of the things that you see as challenges, whether it's living in the inner city, living cross-culturally, if you've done that or are doing that, if your school setting. Somebody start us off or I'll call on my residence. (laughs) Types of challenges that you have. What do you
1: do with your kids? Okay,
0: yeah, kids growing up, and yeah, very big. So, inner city decisions to make, and walking through right responsibilities for them. Other things. Going out of your comfort, going out of your privilege. Yeah, so just having a whole new experience, a different culture than what maybe you've come up with. So I, I grew up in the suburbs. You know, Warren's a small town, and I grew up in the nice little bedroom community of Warren. Uh, so for me, Detroit is out of my comfort zone um, in doing that. So good. Other things, with what about working in the city? What about in dental practice itself? So we've got some aspiring dentists um, working with us here. What are some of the difficulties that we deal with in dentistry that are ch- real challenges for us? Okay, getting patients to pay. What, a, what a, in inner city work, Travis? To to us their okay, sometimes even just getting to show up um, and begin to do that, right? And so, like within the cities where we work, there's a lot of injustice that's, that's taking place there. There's still a lot of racism um, that's going on there. So our patients are dealing that with that. God's exposing things in our lives as we're living and working in there too and learning um, on ourselves and inefficiencies in the system, right? And it, as as in medicine, whatever area of medicine, things are changing so rapidly. I mean, it's just like dentistry from when I went into practice to where it is now to where it's going to be. You know, when you guys graduate, It's just changing. And sometimes the complexities of that, you know, you talk to guys my age and it's like I'm trying just to hang on so I can retire um, and doing that. And so, you know, not wanting to deal with the changes and and complexity. So a lot of things that are going on that create real challenges, both with our kids, with our families, whether it's living, wherever we're living, those challenges become more. And so the question is, can – If we look at a spring, can we things that we can do to get more travel, that we can build more resilience into our lives, so that we have more capacity to respond to the things that God allows to come into our lives? And so, I began to look at that and say, is that just something we have, or is there are there things that maybe we can do to begin to look at that? So I just want to give you a real quick history of one of the uh psychologist that, that did a bit of research on this and so just understand it. And then we're going to take it uh, to some application for us uh, directly. So this guy by name Seligman did some research in the 70s on dogs. Um, and so I won't describe the research because I described the research to my wife. And then she said, I can't think about anything else now. So anyways, out of these dogs, they're put in situations where they they really didn't have a place where they could respond and change their situation. And so he found that three-quarters of those dogs kind of gave up and were depressed. And I got one dog on the left that's always looking depressed, you know, and and all of that. But he said 25% of them were what he called resilient, were responding and still hopeful and trying to figure out a way to get out of their situation and didn't give up. And so this started him thinking in this whole process – of discovering and studying about resilience. And so fast forward to to what he was doing later, um, and he came into this um, getting the six core values uh, that they did. And they did this study across um, different uh, ethnic areas. And so there was studies from – they incorporated areas in Africa and areas in Scandinavia and Asia and all of that. And when they studied all of this, they found – that across cultures, there were six core values that existed in each one. And then further, they began to look and say, what are the character strengths underneath of those? And so as, as I looked at this and was reading through that research, I thought, this is really interesting what those character strengths are, right? So we won't take time to look at all of them, but if we look at, at the humanity here in, in, in the yellow, right, what, it talks about the character strengths being love and kindness and Social intelligence. If we look at temperance, it's humility and prudence and forgiveness and self-regulation. And so as I looked at these things, like, what does that look like? Right? It looks like what we read about in the Bible. Right? And, and so this became, so I'm, I was thinking I was going to get some raw, raw psychology thing. But when I started looking deeper, it was like, wow, these are, there's something to these. And I know where these begin to come from. So that's 2005. By 2011, Seligman became this leader of positive psychology and, and he released this whole PERMA area. And so as we look at that, it's, uh, looking at like positive emotions. And I thought, well, that's just, you know, again, that, okay, we just, we just gotta have a good approach to this and push on through and, and pull it up. But he says, no, it's, what he describes as positive emotions are love, joy, and serenity. And he said, not only are, like those positive emotions, but there are things that we can do to begin to build into those, right? It's savoring the positive experience. So in in practice, in in our clinics in Memphis, you know, you you can have 10 great patients, and it's probably true private practice as well, and then you get that one that comes in and complains, and your day is, like, shot, right? But we need to take time to really celebrate and And those positive experiences and and really savor that. But things like exercise, he says. But then he says gratitude and forgiveness. So those two things, if we learn to forgive, if we learn to have gratitude toward things, that, as much as anything, will contribute to the positive emotions. And so engagement is is an area of, of what they call finding flow. That's where your abilities and stuff are lining up with the things that you're doing such that even though it's big work, it's just like flowing. It's like, you know, being in the zone in basketball, right? It's like, I was created to do this, and, you know, you're making shots and doing that. And and so, you know, sometimes God gives us places like that where the abilities that we have line up with the things that are there. And, and so we have those aspects. And so relationships, I mean, these are all biblical principles. We're not going to go into into all of those. You know, meaning, a purposeful existence, like who more than believers right, can point to a meaningful existence and then achievement, the things that God does and, and allows us to do that. So when we look at these things, one of the things that we ought to be looking at are our Bible stories, right? And so as I continued to read this, I ran across this lady who was finishing up her master's work. This was her capstone project, Global or, or- Resilience Oral Workshops. And this was What she proposed in 2014 as her final project, um, and submitted that in. But it's spiritually based resistance, resilience training that uses Bible stories. So she submitted that for her project as she went to the University of Pennsylvania. Well, it was picked up by secular grant writing organizations. And so she received money. Harvard's involved in it now. And so they're taking this and they're using it in East Africa. So they're using Bible stories to study and build resilience in children. And she's working, I think, age 10 to 12, I think, at, at this point in time with this study to, to now begin to show results, right? So in missions, we've used oral storying for years. Like we did that when we were in Gabon, going to villages and going through Bible storying, right? But if now, and I like to see multiple things come together, but if we can use that by telling the story of Joseph and asking questions so that people start to connect with the resilience of Joseph in his life, as well as starting to point people toward Christ, this may be something that we can begin to do. So one story, I want to tie in one of our stories. And so this there's many stories of resilience in the Bible. um, But I'm going to just tie a little bit in with Nehemiah. He's one of my favorites. So every time, you saw how many times I've moved to new places, first thing I do is sit down and I read the book of Nehemiah in the new place. I open that back up. I see how he came before God, what he did. So the story of Nehemiah, you remember, real, just a quick overview. He was in Persia, right? He was cupbearer to the king, right, and, and, and that. So Babylonian Israelites have been in Babylonian captivity for a good number of years. Persians came in, kicked them out, allowed the Jews then to begin to return to Jerusalem if they chose to. Nehemiah chose to stay and continue to work for the king. But his brother and some of his brother's friends came back and reported on Jerusalem and the walls being torn down and all of that. So Nehemiah goes before the king, gets permission to go to Jerusalem, organizes everything there, gets people on board with vision builds the walls in, in 52 days, right? But he stays on. He was like governor for 12 years or 16 years or something like that. And he continued to, to go and, and, and to work. And then, and then they came together. Ezra showed up, you know, after it was done. And um, and they read from the scriptures, right? And people confessed. And they got on their knees. And it was just life-changing. And set that up. They made new commitments and all of that. And so he gave glory to God. Uh, they celebrated all of that. And I, But... It, For me, looking at him is just so real because it's a guy that has a particular project and we're going to look at just some of the things that he did. And I think these are some of the keys based on what I've learned and looking at that story that we can look at to really begin to build resilience um, into our lives as well. Um, But I love the end of this, right? So this whole celebration, they built this wall in Nehemiah. Uh, they came together. Israel's coming together. They've divided everybody, recognized everybody, moved people back into the city um, so that they could, could take that up and, and coming back. But the last verse is just it just kills me, right? So he's like, they've done this, this great work, celebrate all of this kind of thing. But the very last verse says this. I made provisions for contributions of wood at designated times for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, oh, my God. So he did all of these things, but at the end of it, he still has the routine tasks of getting wood for the sacrifices and continuing to go. Here's this great man, but God doesn't take that from us. Even though we have great experiences, we've got to dig in and do the tasks and and everything on a a regular basis. So quickly, this is what we're going to talk about. This is just something I came up with. This is based on my experiences in, in life and walking out these last 30 years that I've been in practice and and coming through and kind of based on a little bit on Nehemiah and a little bit on my experiences and and some of my friends that have really walked through. But the first key piece um, really in in beginning to build resilience is knowing our identity. And as we look at that, uh, we won't take time to read it just because of the time, but if we look at Nehemiah, he knew His identity, right? He was the son of Hakaliah, and he knew his Jewish descendants, right, and and doing that. And it says, you know, he was cupbearer at the end of the first chapter, he was cupbearer to the king. But in his whole prayer, a servant of God. And so he knew who his identity was. And so as we step into the things that God has for us, the, the key for us, I think the base of all of that is what is our identity? And where does the truth of our identity lie? And so as we look at that as a cornerstone, the key for me is that we are citizens of a new kingdom. We are citizens of a new kingdom. And as we begin to act like citizens of a new kingdom, we begin to act differently. And it's been mentioned in a couple of the uh, sessions that I've been able to sit in on is, is the way that we work out of the kingdom of God is much different than working out of our own culture. And we have the opportunity as citizens of this new kingdom to work toward our culture, to work toward other cultures, and to all of that. And so we need to be moving in in a missionary-type movement, both in this country, into our cities, and other places we go, as opposed to trying to hang on to the last bits of the things that we think resemble kingdom culture. And so... You know, as we look to that, but we have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee and a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know uh, the hope that we are calling. As we go look at this, I, I, I buy books, as some of you know, like I, I like to buy books that I can't read at the time. But I eventually you get to them and, and start sitting down. So this is an old book, um, Thrall and McNichol and Lynch. And I finally got down to read it. And I, this quote just kind of stepped out to me. How I view myself is the most revealing commentary of my theology because it speaks to my relationship with God, it speaks to my relationship with others and where my trust is and whether I'm maturing into likeness or not. And that really hit me and I've seen that to be true. And as we look here, um, the... Grevich and Schott talk about in, in their studies these, these icebergs, and Reimer talks about it in his book. He calls them the lies that we believe about our value. And, and those guys in psychology talk about these icebergs. And so, anytime we have a disproportionate response to something, you know, so like, I'm sure none of you guys would do this, but a dentist, you know, that something's not going right, he starts throwing instruments or something across the you know, for lack of a, you know, looking for a dental analogy or something, you know, a disproportionate response to those things usually indicates that there's things underneath, right, that, that we're not dealing with. And, and so, so that is with us as Christians. It was really true in my life, um, and I'll tell you a little bit of a story that we had there, but they, they highlight three lies that we believe about our identity. Even as Christians, we tend to fall into the trap of believing these things. The first thing is this lie of achievement, That I must be successful or my value to the kingdom comes in my ability to achieve things. Right. And so we believe that and then we act on that and go. The second one we believe is that my value comes from being accepted. That I must please people and be loved at at all costs and doing that. And the third one they talk about is control, that I must maintain control. And so... Like when I was in dental practice, all of these things were really important, right? I wanted to have achievement and produce good results. I wanted to have a sustainable business. I wanted my patients to like me. I wanted more patients to come in the door. And I wanted to control my environment so that I could begin, you know. So it's like in the profession, these things like are all really valuable. But in the kingdom, they can cause us to stumble and and to fall a little bit there. So as I was doing that, I was a missionary working overseas, and I was in the edge of the Sahel area, Sahara Desert, and I was in charge of a, a fairly large project at that time. And I was driven to see that project succeed. Achievement for me was the thing that was really driving me. And so not achieving meant what? You know, so I'm looking at it like, I know God's called me here. That was clear. I mean, there was no question about that. He put me in a place where I was not capable, but that I wanted to see that begin to be done. And and so as I began to to move, I, I was good. But when I would get my back against the wall, I would revert into this achievement-driven mode to get things done and get things accomplished. And so as I did that, I had a couple, couple of big things that, that happened. One is as my kids came and looked into my eyes – they're like, Dad, who have you become? Like, we don't even know you trying to go and get this done. And then I had a, a really good friend that that was there with me, and he would call me and he'd say, Jeff, how's it going? Right? And I would say, Well, you know, we just got three hundred thousand for the pediatric ward, and we got incubators coming in, and we've got this and this and he'd go, Yeah, that's great. But Jeff, how's your soul? How's your soul? And so I began to check, and this was a big turning point in my life. And then the guy that that wrote that book is a friend of mine. He was a partner with us and in our work in Senegal, and uh, and he, w- he came to me one time and he said, "Jeff," he said, I, "I work with a lot of people." He said, "You are the most driven person that I know," and so I'm thinking, "All right," <laughs> you know, but he said, "No," he said, "That's not a good thing." He said, and so he said, Do "You want to." Explore that. And so as I did, it was, it was really interesting. You know, why, you know, raising this Christian home and going through that? And so I'm going to share just a little bit of insights in me. When I was, and this, and this was going to seem really stupid, but as I really reflected on it, like it was some, something that was just crazy and whether this was the whole thing. But I went back to middle school, right? And, and walking through there. And in middle school, we had to make a decision, my parents and I, the, what kind of math I was going to do. Right, So was I was going to be, and at that time we had like three different levels of math, very high, middle, and determine whether you're going to finish calculus before you graduate high school and, and all those kind of things. And I was like, I didn't really care that much about school. I was just floating through. It was easy, it was, but it was not anything I really thought about. And so my mom chose for me to go to the middle math. I don't know. Um, so like I was in this middle math. I'm like, and going back, it's like, don't they think I can do it? You know, it was like, and so, and not really thinking at the time, you know, that much about it, but going through. But, like, what happened was, in in my life, I, like, I then, like, set the curve in all of my math classes. Every single one of them going forward, but never told my parents, right? So, it was like, it was kind of this weird thing where, like, I just wanted to achieve, but I didn't want people to know, and, be a part of it and, and all of that. And the same thing then when in dental school, I was like that same way. Dad's a dentist, I was in practice with him, but it was this driven to achieve and to, to be at the top. And then in my MBA program, it was the same thing. So when God called me to go mission, I took that kind of thing with me, right? And so it was out of that drivenness that I really began to fall. And become exposed, and so as that became evident to me, I was able to really begin to change, right? And say, God, like this is not good. I, like I'm doing this in Your name, and I'm going through that, but there's fallout. There's people <laughs> along the way that that are that are falling out from that. And so God used that to really change my whole approach, and and really ministered to me. And 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 this is. The guys that have been with me like this is is it if we can get identity as the base as the cornerstone of who we are in Christ and recognize that the issue of our value is settled at the cross like that 's it that 's our value is there, who Christ says we are in ephesians that 's who we are, and so that 's settled, and now we can get about living it out as as God intended and going through that, and then one of the Consequences of knowing our identity is that we can actually experience this, contentedness, right? Contentedness. And so our culture is about being driven, about getting things done, about all of those things are so important, right? Who talks about, well, I'm looking for a new CEO. I really want to find somebody that's content, you know? But contentedness, right, to live in that, to live what... Swenson says this state of being unencumbered. Like to not be encumbered. Not to have the comparison. not That doesn't matter anymore. I'm unencumbered. These things are not holding me down. I'm not driven to do this. Whether this happens or this happens. And all of that. And then the last part there that he talks about is having this lack of pretense. That we don't have to be somebody that we're not. And to hold that forward when we know our identity. And so... Really thankful that Apostle Paul just simply says, godliness with contentment is great gain. And he experienced that, his community, and doing that as they wrestled and had all of these things coming on them, these obstacles in their ministry, um, but really began to experience that. And so the others we won't take quite as long, but, but preparation. I think the way that we prepare for things matters. And so... We don't want to do it in a a driven way, but preparation becomes very important for what we do and how we do it and allows us to begin to build resistance into what we do. And for Nehemiah, that's what I love. Like he heard the story from his brother and his heart was broken. And so he began to mourn. And he fasted and prayed. And you'll see a lot of these are the spiritual disciplines. As we can develop spiritual disciplines in our lives of fasting and praying and Sabbath and all of those kind of things and really incorporate those, it goes a long way to giving us, you know, they talk about margin and other things in our lives. But it comes from not Putting just margin in our schedule, it comes from our sense of being in margin. And that's really where margin needs to happen And doing that. So he was praying as he was addressing the king, as he faced opposition, and all of those things. But he didn't only just pray and then wing it, right? He he researched, he planned, and he had an entry strategy to go. And so he knew, he was the ultimate, like some of you have MKs, some of you have MKs, some of you might be MKs. But this idea of third culture kids, that was Nehemiah, right? He was... Like he had the Jewish history and all of that. He's living in a Persian culture. He you know, his parents, grandparents were part of the Babylonian Empire, and so who am I? But he had to relate to the different cultures, and so he had to come before the king in a culturally appropriate way. He had once he got to Jerusalem, he had to come there in such a way that he could rally people to accomplish the things that got there. But he had an answer to the king, he knew what he needed. He knew what the documents he needed to travel safely to Jerusalem. He already knew, that, anticipating what he needed for the timber to build the gates. And so he got a piece of paper that said, I can have access to the forests of the king to, to build all of these things. And so planning and all of that is important. Um, you know, He went and looked and, and brought others on board. And so one of the key principles as we enter into cities, as we enter into other nations and all that, is that our approach matters. It's really important how we do that. And so uh, Elmer's done a great job of kind of teaching that. And, you know, we we want to go in and we want to be servants in the inner city, right? And we realize that as we do that, we don't get to define whether or not we're servants or not. It's our neighbors that get to say, are we really servants and how are we doing? And so um, just real quickly going through this, this is uh, produced by InterVarsity, but it's a, a lot of the stuff that Elmer Does And I don't know if you can see that or not, but uh, in the middle section, we have these inevitables. And so when we're working cross-culturally, it's that difference, right, of coming into a new culture. It's me going into the inner city when I grew up in the suburbs and, like, wanting to make a difference but not knowing how to do that. And so those things, um, practice in dentistry. So if you practice in private practice and you had a high-end private practice and you go work in an FQHC, right, there's going to be – all of these things. So that's, that was my experience coming in. There's frustrations, misunderstandings, confusion, embarrassment, getting aggressive, right? And, and doing that. And so, how we approach this matters. And so if we haven't settled our identity, we come at it with a drivenness, suspicion, fear, superiority on the bottom. That's our approach to it. When we hit those things on the bottom, we start to criticize and rationalize our approach. These people, why don't they just get what we're doing? Why aren't they showing up for their appointments? All of this. And then we have broken relationships and withdraw. But if we choose to come with openness, acceptance, trust, and approach it that way, as we hit those inevitable things that are going to come and doing that, then we begin to observe, initiate, and question and to begin to learn and so that we develop understanding, relationships are saved, and doing that. So our approach matters as we go cross-culturally. It matters as we go into the inner city. But shouldn't it matter as we go into the operatory for each individual patient? You know, I think, you know, sometimes if you're a dentist, you're walking in to see that patient, and you're like, oh, no, this is it whoever that's on the schedule and, and, and coming in. But what if our approach was really openness, trust, um, coming into that operatory and let that experience begin to um, work through some of the things that, that we're looking at doing. I don't know if I have time to tell this story, but I think I'll think i tell it real quick. So we, we moved into that neighborhood that I described, and so um, a place called Hamtramck, that's, that's where we live. And and so as we were in there, um, this was just last week, um, my wife is, is an academic dean at a school there at a high school, and so all the kids are all excited about that. She's like, oh, man, we better – Get some candy. We, might, and we have a ton of kids on our street in the next street, just tons of kids, right? So she's like, "Oh, I'll buy all this candy. All these kids are going to come." And, and so our, our neighbor next next door, um, a Muslim lady. So Carrie te- texts her and says, "You know, how many people should we expect, you know, on our street for Halloween?" And she's like, "Well, we're all Muslim, so I don't think you'll have any." <laughs> She's like, oh, okay. I just, she said, and they said, well, we don't really believe in that. And she said, oh, we don't really celebrate it either, Halloween. But I love seeing the kids and all of that. She said, well, let me send you a picture uh, of my son who was dressed up at his school today. And so she texted her over this picture of the little guy next door. And it's like, oh, yeah. She goes, wait a minute. The Miriam next door says, I'm going to have the boys put on their costumes and we're going to come over. And they've never trick or treated. And you're not going to get anybody to come to your house so we're going to bring them over and and, and do that. So it was like 20 minutes later um, or 30 minutes later she, they they come in and the boys are there and I'm upstairs working so cuz culturally we, we don't want to be in the same place and um, so as she comes in with the, with the kids they, you know Carrie's like uh trick, you know, trick or treat and giving them all these you know sour patch and all of this and so as they're getting ready to leave Miriam pulls out and she gives us this fine chocolate to Carrie and she goes and here for you ma'am. and Carrie goes that's not how you do it. That's not how trick-or-treat works. And she goes, oh, I'm sorry. We don't know how it works. We're new here. <laughs> you know, We've never done trick-or-treat before or whatever. And so, anyways, I got a good laugh of it, and we ended up with more candy than we started with. And, um, and, but the relationship is going. And so it's just to highlight those differences and how God can even use even differences in that when we're really open and not threatened by the things that, that he does. And so opposition's going to come with Nehemiah was ridicule and Concerns, stirring up trouble, beginning to attack leadership, um, going through that, and, and and the the key with this is and the thing that lesson that God taught me is that we think that we need to minister out of our strengths, right? That we need to face opposition with strength, and that we attack that and go, and we use you know our mind that God's given us, and we justify it. God's given me a good mind and a good this and that, and and I want to go do that, right? But it's only when we realize that, that that's not the way that we approach that. Um, you know, if we're working cross-culture, if we're working in our city, it's going to be put to the test so quick, right, with the opposition that we have. But it's not in our strength, it's in his power um, in, in doing that. And as we were, again, in that same uh, city, we are building the only Christian hospital in this country. So we had a lot of opposition um, in, the, in this nation, and so we had to have people sign off on that who, you know, were not believers, and 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 going through that. And so as the hospital got up, we got permission, we got things going, and, and things were beginning to, to go and, and go pretty well. Um, and then the uh, got word. So I'd have tea every day with a couple of guys on the street, and we'd talk politics and religion and all of that. And but um, they started to say, hey, listen the imams are starting to preach against you guys. And so this began to build. And so in that town, there was a good, good number of that. And it's like, what do you do with that? How do you how do you combat that? And we didn't have that ability, right? So we just began to cry out to God and say, Lord, we don't know how to do this but um, and doing that. And as we prayed, um, next month or two, um, we got word and sitting there that the government had stepped in and had heard about, the things that were going on there. And they sat, had pulled the imams together and they said, listen, you know that every one of you have sent your wives and your kids to this place to have treatment. And they're coming in love and they're coming to treat you. If you don't stop this, we're going to move you out. And, And so with that little bit, something that we could have never imagined... God began to change that, right? And people continued, and then the work began to continue and go. And so God's been good. Community, man, I learned so much about community uh, in Memphis uh, with my friends. But Nehemiah did things together, um, building the wall, working with the, the folks as he's hearing that, the confession, the celebration, and all of those kind of things. And so my confession is, like, I I. Learn so much. I love community. But what I don't do really well with it is the celebration piece of it. So that's what I want to leave with you today, uh, too, is with community, that we celebrate together, share those victories, remember those God stories, because those are the things that begin to build. And so uh, one of our first residents painted me this on, on the way out. At, that's Memphis Skyline. It has a first Samuel uh, verse on there. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. And this would I would always come back and say, let's remember what God did up to this point, And let's remember this. And so as we walk out community, we couldn't have done it. We wouldn't want to do it any differently. And as we look to what God wants to do in Detroit, we're just praying as he builds community in up there to really come together um, and to do that. And then it comes down to this. The last bit is um, is trust. Um, as we were. Working overseas, um, you know, and some of you I know in this room have, have been in there, and there's some really tough things that that can happen and, and coming through there. And so we were, um, Carrie and I were up, up in the Middle East. Uh, we were looking, we were doing a vision trip to, for our next assignment and up there. And it was just one of those things, that, the situation, and we went in and we were, I uh, had just gone to an area that was a kind of a resort place for a day to kind of see some of the sights in that country and um, went back to a hotel room and Carrie jumped in the shower and I flipped on CNN. And the headline story on CNN at that day was that our kids who we had left behind in school, civil war had broken out in that country and the kids and everybody in that school had been taken hostage. And so I'm looking at this on CNN scrolling across, and I'm like, babe, you know, come here. And as, as we looked at that, um, just began to, God put us in a place of just weakness, right? As a dad, my I'm trying to provide and do all this for, for our kids. And um, we had really good friends with us that were there, and so we, we just began to pray, seek God. We went back to the Capitol and it was a Friday, and so there was a church service going on that evening, and we just wanted to go be with believers, and so it j- just an amazing story of God's goodness. We walked into that church to worship, and there was a group of ladies that were praying. And as we walked in, you know, we're just kind of there, and and our, and our friend said We want to introduce you to the pastor's wife, and she said, she came over and said hi, hey, you know, you doing, and all that, and 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 I said, well, what are you guys, what are you guys doing? She said, oh, we're praying. She goes. Uh, Ed, Ed told me that you guys were down south, so you probably didn't hear this news. But you see, there's this school in down in the in Ivory Coast in West Africa, and the rebels had taken the kids there hostage, and and all of that. And so she said, "We're praying for those kids and for those parents." And so we just start bawling, right? And she she had no idea that we were, you know, two of those parents that were there. And so I, I tell that story. Because it was really difficult. But it speaks to community. Like our community is not just this. But it's kingdom community around the world. Like God's building his church around the world. In incredible ways. And we as dentists and as professionals. Get to play a role in that. My role has changed dramatically. And continues to change. in the role that I play in in building that kingdom. But he's doing an amazing work around it. And so to be ministered by the body of Christ in that way was tremendously. But the next thing was now what, you know, we had requests everywhere. Come back here, bring your kids, do all that. They eventually got out. They were um, a little bit of a week and a half. Special forces were able to go in and, and, and pull everybody out and, and to do all that reunited. But what do we do? And so as we're seeking God, Lord, what do you have for us in this particular situation? and, for each person, you know, it's it's their talk with God and doing that. And so for ours, we felt very strongly that God was asking us to continue to move forward. But it was with this particular thing. Are you going to trust me in this, the hardest time of your life, to move forward and to do that and to step into the things that God has? And so as we look at this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and not lean on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And and so as we look at, at what God has, it's this identity and preparation, opposition that we face, community and trust. So this list, when I started, this list was really long. And so as I just examined my life and what was happening there, just seeing how this lines up, even with some of the psychology that's, that's coming and, and how that represents the Bible and biblical and what God's doing in all of our lives. So as we look at dentistry, as we look at inner city, whatever that is, We have application that we can take to our own life and the things that God wants to do through us. And and so just in closing, this is the last thing, and I'll I'll read this to you, But um, that I came across from C.S. Lewis uh, in Mere Christianity. Um, Because God's often up to something that we have no idea what he's up to in our lives as we go through difficult times. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And it doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing up a new wing here and putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. So you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. And so God allows us to walk through the hard, but he also gives us the support that we need. And so as we look at dentistry and whatever God's called you to and whatever he's going to do in that, I believe that we have an opportunity to begin to prepare for that, to build resilience into our lives, to get back to the simple spiritual disciplines that, that he teaches in the scriptures, to really read those stories of those Bible characters maybe in a different way, to see the resilience in their lives of keeping to push forward because they knew who they were and they knew that God was calling them and had a mission for them uh, to call and to continue to serve. And so I've got two minutes for questions. <laughs> Sorry, I took about ten minutes longer than I anticipated Um, in going through this. So anything I can answer for you or any discussion we can have? Nope. Well, thank you all so much and we'll be around if you want to talk or chat a little bit and all of that. Thanks.